Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. On Commons People this week, comings and goings at number 10. Uh, the man who's resigned, I last I only met when he chased me dressed as a chicken. When... Some actual good COVID news. So, uh, are you? Do we now say with confidence that life should be returning to normal by spring? Yes, yes, yes. And what now for the special relationship? I'm, I, I'm delighted uh, to find the many areas uh, in which uh, the Biden, the incoming Biden uh, Harris administration, uh, is able to make common cause with us. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me this week is Paul War. Hi Arj. Hi Paul and we've got the Conservative Chair of the Commons Foreign Affairs Committee, Tom Tugendhat. Hi Arj. Hi Tom, how are you? Yeah, very well, thanks. Good, good. See you're still in the Commons. I am, I am. I've been, uh, I've been speaking about Hong Kong this morning in the Chamber. Yeah, excellent. I'm sure there'll be a chance to mention that later as well. But this was the week that tensions among number 10's warring factions spectacularly burst into the open. Lee Kane has announced he will quit as Boris Johnson's director of communications following a backlash at suggestions he could be promoted to chief of staff. The row has left many questioning whether the PM is attempting to move Downing Street away from the vote leave power base headed up by Dominic Cummings. And there has even been fevered speculation that Cummings himself may go. Let's just listen to Tory grandee Ken Clark's assessment of the row. Dominic Cummings I have never met. Uh, the man who's resigned, I, last, I only met when he chased me dressed as a chicken when he was campaigning for the <laughs> Labour Party uh, a few years ago, and I have not, I'm afraid, met him since. Uh, I'd seen a decent enough chicken at the time. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so it's all gossip. There's lots of that in Westminster, lots of that from my old friends who are still ministers and so on. And it is all a bit of a shambles. And, and uh, Cummings, uh, Cummings is obviously exercising too powerful a role in the government. He's certainly agreed upon by quite a large number of the people I know, including quite a few who are holding senior posts in government. But uh, whether or not it would be a good thing, I've no idea. Or whether some other campaigning guru will be found to replace him as the, the key man in government, I, I have the first idea. I, 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 at the moment, you'll not be surprised to know and far removed from the inner workings of 10 Downing Street. It's worth pointing out at this stage that Ken Clark referred to Kane being the mirror chicken that chased him, but it wasn't. It was actually Tom McTague from The Atlantic, so just for accuracy's sake. Um, but, Paul, what's going on here, and why does it matter? Well, we've all had a bit of fun with it, let's be honest, uh, but uh, there is a serious side to it. The fun side was actually the punning potential of Lee Kane's surname, obviously, I think I... I did Kane Unable last night and uh, Raising Kane. And I think someone on Twitter actually sent me a really nice one, which was Unlucky Fired Chicken. I thought that was quite good, actually. <laughs> Comings and goings as well, of course. Exactly. No, but the, the, the fact is, I, I talked to a former minister yesterday and I said, well, what do you make of all this? This is the middle of the whole row. Um, and they said, I couldn't give a flying F. 
And, and there's a lot of MPs like Tom, I'm sure, who probably agree with that verdict. They, no one really cares about the personnel. Uh, but what does matter, why does it matter, is because this isn't just a row, you know, an, an unusual office politics row that, uh, you know, so-and-so says so-and-so over something over the photocopier at work, if we could all be in work. This is Downing Street. And the reason it matters is that prime ministers need a team around them to do all the stuff that prime ministers can't do. They do not have enough hours in the day to actually... Uh, direct the team, all the arms of government, and coordinate at the same time. They've got, they've got a job as prime minister to do, so they have a team, of, 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 a staff at number ten, and that that staff has to be a competent, but b sort of set the direction of the government. It, it, it's all about what are the government's priorities and how does it present itself. And this whole row comes right down to, ironically, the man who's supposed to be the director of communications is Lee Kane. Um, on that, you know, his job is communications. Yesterday, what a disaster in terms of communications. On the day that we have such yet more COVID deaths, a, a record number since May. And what we're all talking about, um, Boris Johnson's infighting. So on the communications front, it's a signal failure. Uh, so it's no wonder he's gone on that sense. But there's a wider point, which was, why is he gone? He's gone because Boris Johnson wants to pep up his communications. He wants to have a TV briefing every day, American-style um, sort of press secretary called Allegra Stratton. And um, this is a brand new innovation for Britain. Uh, we'll see, we can talk later about whether or not it's got good points and down points or, or bad points. But um, that's what's behind all of this. Um, Boris Johnson decided he wanted to appoint her. Lee Kane, for some reason, really didn't like the idea of Allegra Stratton being appointed. So he uh, was offered a job almost as a consolation. And in, in true Boris Johnson fashion, Boris Johnson tried to smooth the waters, make everybody happy. And in doing so, create more, created more unhappiness because people thought, well, this guy is just a bit too brash. He's, why is he getting over promoted? But so we've got to put it in context, which is it's about the government's projection of itself that's what this is really to it's about its strategic direction and what sort of people are in number 10 and crucially are they there to reconnect the party people like tom and party members and voters and the members of the public with what's happening in downing street that's really what this is all about tom do you want to come in there what do you make of this a lot of your colleagues are very unhappy or have been very unhappy with number 10 and see this as an opportunity to put someone in there now, now that Lee Kane's gone as chief of staff who can reconnect with the backbenchers. Oh, look, there's a long, uh, there's a long tradition of, uh, I support the King, but you know, his evil advisor has led him astray. And what we need to do is restore the King to his true nature. I mean, this is literally what everybody was saying in Russia from 1900 till 1917. You know, I mean, sorry, Paul, that's bollocks. And the, tr the truth is that- <laughs> Don't know, hold that. And no, look, I mean... Which know, bit is bollocks? <laughs> the, the truth is the decisions in number 10 are made by the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister is in charge and decisions that come out of number 10 are a reflection of the Prime Minister, whoever that is. We remember what Theresa May's Prime Ministership was like. We remember what David Cameron's Prime Ministership was like. And they reflect the nature of the person who sits in the office. There's very few jobs that so fully sort of reveal the nature of the leader uh, as being prime minister or perhaps you know maybe there are a few others but uh, maybe being a newspaper editor is one of them I don't know you guys can tell me that but the uh, but, the, but the reality is that this reveals uh, the nature of the individual and uh, that's why I'm afraid I'm not terribly excited about uh, the appointment or uh, departure of uh, various advisors. But isn't the point that actually the reason this is different um, is because it just lays bare just how much Boris Johnson isn't showing 
a normal prime ministerial approach to life. In other words, he does hugely rely on someone like Dominic Cummings, so much so that he wouldn't sack him for the egregious mistakes during lockdown. So it, what it shows, perhaps, is that actually Boris Johnson isn't like those previous... He's not like Theresa May. You can't imagine Theresa May being bossed around by her advisers. You can't imagine David Cameron being really? bossed around by really? her advisers. Can you? I seem to remember. I seem to remember people writing stories about Nick and Fee uh, when they were the special advisor at her home office and at number 10. I seem to remember people writing evil dark arts stories about Andy Coulson. I certainly remember them writing them about Alistair Campbell and Tony Blair. I mean, you know, I'm afraid this is this is the nature of the, the lobby trade, I'm afraid, Paul, is that you constantly try to look for signals in the uh, in the tea leaves, even when the tea's been drunk and dried. <laughs> If 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 the, the office of prime minister simply reveals the kind of the character of the incumbent, as you say, Tom, then chaotic episodes like this on the day we've hit fifty thousand coronavirus deaths, what does that say about the prime minister? Well, look, I'll leave I'll leave uh, I'll leave other, everybody to interpret the the, the, the nature of the uh, the nature of the office as they choose. But uh, look, I think the reality is that this demonstrates that we've really got to get serious about this. You know, the British people deserve better than to have both the highest death rates in Europe and the worst econ economic output. They deserve better because actually this is a country that has, broadly speaking, obeyed the rules, has broadly speaking, gone back to work, has absolutely done the right thing in terms of balancing the risk and now needs to have uh, absolutely the support that it can. Now, some bits are going well, uh, and I think we should recognise them. The number of tests in the UK is now higher than anywhere else in Europe. And the uh, effort that was made on the vaccines means that the UK is way ahead of many others in terms of having, I mean, let's hope that this vaccine works. But if it does work, then we'll have 30,000, uh, sorry, 30 million shots ready to go uh, quicker than anyone else. So, you know, some things have gone really well here and we should recognise that. Uh, and the other bits, well, it's a bit of a noise. We'll talk about COVID in a second, but Paul, there was, there was some fevered speculation that Dominic Cummings and even David Frost, the chief Brexit negotiator, might quit in solidarity with Lee Kane last night. That seems to have died down now, but... Yeah, I think that was just a symptom of how wild things were yesterday, all this wild speculation. The very idea that anyone could even reasonably think that your chief Brexit negotiator, with a week to go to the deadline, is somehow going to walk out in a huff because of some minor personnel change. It's, it's ludicrous. But it, it, it just showed that actually that, that spinning war, that briefing war was in just full flow. And it, it pointed to actually the real heart of the problem, which is it's far removed from reality. And I think that is the real problem that PM's got. I mean, just to slightly push back on Tom. Yeah, you're right. Ultimately, of course, it all comes down to the prime minister. But if the prime minister, as we know, is not a details man, is not even a strategy man, then what is he for? If he, if he outsources his brain to someone like Cummings in strategy, if he outsources detail to lots of other people, what is he doing? Well, the prime minister has been hired because he's the great communicator. And the, well, that's the point. What was the communication yesterday? That's exactly what he's communicating. <laughs> <laughs> Chaos. Yeah, good point. And we should mention as well that um, Boris Johnson's partner, Carrie Simmons, uh, apparently objected to the appointment of Kane as chief of staff. And obviously Allegra Stratton's played a key role. In, and there's talk of this kind of boys club in number 10 being broken up here. Paul, I mean, you... You've had a bit of a joke there, but I mean, what the Prime Minister's communicating is actually pretty simple. It's that he wants a proper uh, media operations team run by Allegra Stratton. 
you know, you can think what you like about various people, but uh, Allegra Stratton has demonstrated her capability on numerous occasions in print, on uh, TV, and and uh, and running comms for uh, Rishi Sunak that appear to have gone very well. So he's clearly demonstrating pretty good judgment there. I would I would argue. And Tom, do you think the idea of televised briefings, just the last one on this, do you think the idea of televised briefings for the government daily is a good one? I, I've got really mixed views about this. On one level, I can see the accountability because at the moment, uh, you guys know better than me, but the lobby briefing is all sort of off the record and a nod and a wink. So I can see the argument. For it's, it's, it's on the record. Uh, sorry, on the record, but not uh, not name sourcing. Forgive me. That's, that's right. it. That's correct. But, yeah. the, but it's all sort of, it's all sort of, uh, you know, it, it has its downsides, but the, um, the the problem with with doing it on TV like this is you kind of end up where is the government's official voice? Is it done by ministers in the House of Commons or is it done by a spokesman in uh, an office just outside Downing Street? You know, I mean, the advantage of things being done in the House of Commons is you know that by law that is the government's policy. If it's said by a spokesman, is that policy or is that just opinion? That's a very good point. I mean, I think actually one innovation which Number 10 deserves credit for is actually the, the Downing Street briefings which happened during coronavirus because, precisely because, they were led by the Prime Minister or a minister. So it was another way of getting their message across beyond the House of Commons. And I think it worked quite well. It worked. Unfortunately, we've seen in recent weeks the dangers of not having regular briefings. So the public lose confidence. They don't really know what, what the strategy is. And it's no surprise that the government started rev reviving them in lockdown twice a week and the, even having a specialist briefing. I think the danger of having the press briefing, televised press briefing, is that we go down the sort of West Wingization, yet more West Wingization of, of British politics, because I think what you'll soon find is that um, Allegra Stratton will become, I hate to say it, but she will become as much a household name, if not more than many cabinet ministers, because be, precisely because of the power of TV. She'll be there every night. She will be um, his master's voice. Um, and, you know, just as in the United States, it depends sometimes on just how effective that communicator is. Sometimes they can be amazing. There's no question. They can do a brilliant job. Um, but the, the whole reason, I have to say, looking at the history of this, having done this for more than 20 odd years, the reason that um, traditionally they're not on camera and those briefings are off camera and they're only described as the prime minister's official spokesperson, not even their real name, it's precisely because traditionally they've been a civil servant and civil servants are not named. They act entirely on behalf of ministers. They are not the story. Whereas I think Allegra being on TV every day, she may well become the story and through no fault of her own, various incidents will happen. She'll have to defend it in a certain way. And and she's not elected. And I think that's going to be quite difficult um, how that pans out, I've got to say. I think there's also one other challenge. You know, the advantage of your lobby briefings and your and your off, uh, sorry unnamed sort of things is it, it means that you do get, uh, if you'll excuse me, the geekier end of Fleet Street can go through the detail question by question and really push hard. Whereas if it's on camera, there is just the smallest danger. I know it wouldn't happen with you, Paul, but that some of the uh, some of the journalists will play to the camera and constantly look for the gotcha question rather than the forensic question. And that would harm journalism and it would harm accountability. Yeah. yeah. Well, as we've mentioned, while all this has been going on, the UK reached the grim milestone of 50,000 coronavirus deaths. 
But there has also been some really positive news this week with the announcement that Pfizer and BioNTech's vaccine was 90% effective in trials. And also some positive data about new rapid lateral flow tests being piloted across the country. And many are now daring to dream of an end to lockdown misery. But in a brilliantly metaphor-heavy press conference, Deputy Chief Medical Officer Jonathan Van Tam urged caution. This to me is like a train journey where you're standing on the station, it's wet, it's windy, it's horrible, and two miles down the tracks, two lights appear and it's the train, and it's a long way off. We're at that point at the moment. That's the efficacy result. Then we hope the train slows down safely to get into the station. That's the safety data. And then the train stops. And at that point, the doors don't open. The guard has to make sure it's safe to open the doors. That's the MHRA. That's the regulator. And when the doors open, I hope there's not uh, an unholy scramble for the seats. The JCVI has very clearly said which people are going to need the seats most, and they are the ones who should get on the train first. That's how we have to frame this. And right now, it's a couple of miles down the tracks, and we've just seen the lights come round the bend. Uh, Paul, were Van Tam and Boris Johnson being slightly overcautious? No, Perhaps. I think they're absolutely right to be cautious, because, you know, if this, this is the classic, you know... E- easy mistake of any government which is to over promise and under deliver when you should get it the other way around and it's certainly uh, i think bantam's one of the best communicators in the business we've just been talking about communication and he's been really clear he's been quite authoritative uh, and he's got that sort of air of credibility which i think the government really really needs and him saying look you know let's let's not get overexcited uh, as rubbed off on people like Matt Hancock and on the Prime Minister. Obviously, the Prime Minister's great asset in life is is an optimist, uh, and that is hugely attractive and was at the last election. But at the same time, you know, in a time of crisis, I think he's beginning to realise you need to rein it in. And if there are successes, then you trump, let them trumpet themselves. I, he didn't need to do it. So, um, you know, if and when a vaccine is approved, and that would be great news. But until then, I think it, it's quite sensible to be cautious, really. No, I think Paul's absolutely right. I think I think actually this is a, an announcement that the government's handled extremely well. Yes, it's a very welcome announcement. Of course, it shows a very positive direction. But let's not pretend that this is the time to break out the celebrations. It's not. Uh, there's still a hell of a long way to go. You kind of touched on this um, a bit earlier, Tom, but there is thoughts are already turning to the vaccine rollout. And obviously it's going to take some months to fully roll it out until all the top 10 lists of priority groups are vaccinated. Um, when do we start opening up the economy? Do we wait until everyone on that top 10 list has been vaccinated or do we need to start opening it up sooner and in 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 stages perhaps as more people are vaccinated oh do we need to we need to know a little bit more about the vaccine before i can answer that question and i don't think anybody knows these answers but the first is does it just lower the uh incidence of death in people or does it actually stop contagion because if it if contagion continues and people still get ill and people still take up hospital beds then actually it doesn't change as much in terms of social distancing as, for example, if it really does stop contagion. If it stops contagion, then you're in a very different world. So it's, you know, I just can't answer the question, I'm afraid. And I don't think anybody else can at this stage. And that's why I thought the Prime Minister was absolutely right. I thought he handled those questions extremely well. 
course it's positive. Of course it's good news. But let's not, you know, let's not pretend it's a done deal yet. It's not. And the other, the other bit of good news this week, of course, was the lateral flow test, the, the, the research on that, showing that actually they've been very, very effective. And um, the mass testing in Liverpool is going on quite well. I mean, I think the hope is that I think 44,000 people have been tested in Liverpool now. And if that is done on a regular basis, if, if they all come back next week, then we'll have a lot more data. But that, that was, as, in my opinion, as significant as the vaccine breakthrough was the idea that somehow... These tests are not just highly specific, but they're highly sensitive. In other words, you know, the number of false positives they produce is as, as low as possible. Um, and in people with a high viral load, this was the key finding, 95% uh, sensitivity. So that suggests that actually people can have a regular test, a rapid test, less than 30 minutes. They can administer it themselves in their own home and they can find out within 30 minutes, am I clear? Um, and, and they can go about their daily life for the next few days, then get another test. And I think that that actually is really, really an important weapon in the arsenal. There's no question about it. It was described as a moonshot, obviously, and it sounds like, you know, to, to fair credit to Matt Hancock for for at least trying that, that route. Um, it could well pay off. Well, look, this is, in fact, the route that the Japanese and the Taiwanese and the, and, and the South Koreans have taken. Now, they've, they've done the control mechanism slightly differently. They've done it by social control and then later by testing. Uh, but they still haven't got a vaccine any quicker than we have. They haven't got a vaccine today. Nobody does. And so if we manage to get testing to be that level of social control or to encourage that social control, then actually we end up being able to open up the economy in many areas. And you can imagine uh, that, you know, maybe you have to turn up to the cinema half an hour early and if you if you if you're clear of the test, then you can go in. Same with a restaurant. Same with you know nightclub or whatever. And you could really see uh, society opening up again very very quickly. And that would be a hell of a uh, a hell of a thing for, for for all of us after this last year. That would be great, um, Paul. Some concerns have been raised about the kind of anti-vax movement. Last year at Tory conference, you interviewed Matt Hancock, and obviously this was way before COVID or a few months before COVID. So it wasn't in this context, but he raised the prospect of compulsory vaccinations. Do you think that could happen with COVID? Well, it's obviously a very unconservative thing to do to talk about compulsory vaccinations. But Matt Hancock was right in the sense that he was worried at the low rate of vaccination. And um, particularly the fact is that this phrase herd immunity. Herd immunity is a much maligned phrase, but actually it matters when it comes to vaccination. You need a certain percentage of people to be vaccinated for that vaccine to be effective. And 80% or higher, preferably 85%, 90 is really important. So getting the numbers up really matters. And I think um, Hancock last year was, was, was basically trying to suggest, look, not necessarily compulsion, but if your child, in other words, it's a rights and responsibilities thing. If your child is signed into a school register, then they should automatically then be signed up at the same time with their local GP for vaccinations. And if they're not on that local GP list, then maybe they don't go to school maybe your rights and responsibilities need to be in balance. You, you don't get the right to use the NHS or public services if you don't share the responsibility to, to be vaccinated. Now, that's a debate that we might find difficult, but I think with this new vaccine coming along, then it's a debate that's going to uh, be resurrected, I suspect. Yeah, Tom, if, if take-up's slow, and don't just say we need to wait and see what take-up's like, but do you think it's an idea that's worth um, thinking about, perhaps? Well, it's uh, look, I think what's worth thinking about is is um, the testing policy and uh, if vaccination uh, works and if we 
you know, if we're confident that it's safe, which you know, all, all indications so far are good, then I can certainly see the day when businesses say, look, uh, you've got to return to the office, and if you're not vaccinated, uh, you're not coming in. Uh, and and I can certainly see, uh, you know, social venues asking for uh, vaccination certificates. You know, I remember when uh, I used to travel uh, rather more than I do now. When you go into uh, certain countries, you had to show a yellow fever certificate. And if you did not have a yellow fever certificate, you weren't allowed in the country. And that was that. There was no debates, no appeals, no no further requests. And And I can see a situation where, yes, of course, you're free not to have the vaccine. But there are consequences. Yeah. And maybe for public services as well, do you think, Tom? I don't know. Look, I, I, it, I think it would depend what the public services were and who and when. So I, I'm, I wouldn't want to start predicting. But I do think that, you know, if things are shown to be safe, uh, then rejecting them when they have a wider effect on the whole of society is going to have consequences. Yeah, interesting. Get your jab to go to India or to go to Sainsbury's, perhaps. But uh, anyway, the timing of Pfizer's vaccine announcement days after the US election will certainly have raised eyebrows in the White House, where loser Donald Trump is still refusing to accept defeat. In the meantime, the rest of the sane world has welcomed Joe Biden as America's president-elect. Boris Johnson had a phone conversation with Biden this week, but there are questions over just how special their relationship will be. The PM, meanwhile, annoyed Republicans by dubbing Trump the former president in the Commons. Uh, let's just have a listen. Well, uh, Mr. Speaker, I had uh, and have a good relationship with the previous president. I, I, I do not resolve uh, from that. This is the duty of all British prime ministers to have a good relationship uh, with the White House. Uh, but I'm, I, I'm delighted uh, to find the many areas uh, in which uh, the Biden, the incoming Biden-Harris uh, administration uh, is able to make common cause with us. Uh, Paul, uh, geopolitical realities mean Biden and Johnson will probably work together OK, but does it matter that, that there is a bit of tension and friction between the two teams over, over Johnson's approach to Brexit and also his past comments about Barack Obama? Look, I, I think ultimately everyone who's serious about this knows that it doesn't really matter that the, the fundamental relationship is based on mutual interest and self-help. And, you know, whether it's the Five Eyes intelligence, whether it's, you know, our, our military closely intertwined with the US military, whether it's on nuclear or conventional weapons, you know, there are really, really strong ties between the countries. And that's why, of course, why did... You know, Joe Biden pick up the phone and talk to Boris Johnson as the second world leader. Why? Because self-interest. Uh, Trudeau, traditionally, um, you know, the US presidents tend to do either um, Canada or Mexico. That makes a lot of sense. They're near neighbours, again, because of mutual interest. But why? Why Britain and not France? Why Britain and not Merkel? For all those reasons I've just said, because we have much stronger ties than those other countries. Um, uh, with the US. And, and that's a, a hard reality that Biden, as a very, very long and experienced person who deals with foreign affairs, um, is fully aware of. And I think that, um, you know, uh, the one thing that Biden, everyone forgets, Biden's a bit like Boris in some ways. He's, he can be loose tongued. He can be, you know, he can he can plagiarize famously that Kinnock speech from all those years ago. Um, but and, and so sometimes he'll get into trouble as much as Boris Johnson will. You know, I think perhaps when he said I think it was uh, a year ago, he said that, um, yeah, it was nearly a year ago after Labour got thwacked in the in the um, general election. He said that Boris Johnson was, quote, a physical and emotional clone of Donald Trump. Now, that's not the sort of thing, really, that a, a, a presidential candidate in the making should say about another uh, world leader. So, 
you know, it shows that actually sometimes the gaffes can be on both sides, but ultimately the gaffes don't matter. Yeah, Tom, I imagine you you probably think broadly the same, but but this position from Biden on the Good Friday Agreement and Brexit and the Internal Market Bill could could that prove to be a tricky early issue for the UK yeah. to navigate? Well, yeah, but it's, let's have a look. Let's have a good look at the, the issue first, because recently uh, Sinn Fein and the DUP, in a very unusual moment of bipartisanship, uh, pointed out the problems with the withdrawal agreement and the challenge that this meant for the island of Ireland and for the all Irish economy, and actually, by the way, for the for the UK, all UK economy as well. So th- th- let's not pretend that one of these answers is perfect and the other one is, is appalling. They both have challenges and they both need resolution, which is why so many of us are absolutely urging the government to get a deal. Uh, because we really need to make sure that we don't have to invoke these clauses. We need to make sure that we protect uh, the agreement that we've already uh, struck. So I'm very much hoping that uh, that's where we're going to go. But I have to say, I mean, all this talk about you know Biden's uh, support of the Good Friday Order as though that's in some way anti-British. I remember the bombs going off in London. I remember the uh, Marines barracks being blown up in Deal, the people being killed in Warrington. Good Friday Accord was good for the whole of the United Kingdom. It wasn't an Irish issue. It was a whole of the UK issue uh, that was solved with the Good Friday Agreements. And I have to say, anybody who backs the Good Friday Accords is, by definition, as far as I'm concerned, a friend of the UK and a friend of Kent. Yeah. uh, Trump, uh, Tom, you you head up the the China research group, the China Skeptic Research Group, if I may say so. Trump was a massive China skeptic. China, China pragmatic. Okay. Yes. Sorry. China pragmatic. But Trump was was a major China pragmatist. Maybe shall we say? What do you see as Biden's position on China? And I have, you... it's look. It's basically the same. I mean, you know, it's the one thing that uh, Trump and Pelosi came to the U- when they both came to the UK a few months apart a number of years ago. They both said the same thing. I mean, it's about the only truly bipartisan issue in the United States is concern over China's uh, growing dominance of uh, global economy and, and, and various other elements. And it's one of those things that you look around the world and you see many people now sharing the same view. Now, you know, France banned Huawei in 2009 at a time when Germany was very, very pro uh, engagement with China. Well, you saw Heiko Maas the other day speaking to the Chinese foreign minister, literally sharing a, a, a platform with him and uh, being pretty clear, pretty, actually clearer than I possibly would have been, you know, about China's bullying in Europe. You see the Czech government doing the same thing. This is not, you know, this is not a Trump-Biden split. This is a democratic world, authoritarian world split. And all of us are on the same position. Now, I hope what Biden will do is he will internationalize more and so bring more cooperation because that's i think where his instincts go as a former chair of the foreign affairs committee <laughs> and just the last one do you think we should invite him for a state visit as soon as possible i think former chairs of foreign affairs committees should be treated with all due respect <laughs> good career move yeah <laughs> well it's an interesting one isn't it and meanwhile my opposite number in germany is running for the chancellorship so i'll leave that there <laughs> Tom, you're gonna get tongues wagging tom now yeah careful careful you right and I both know that tongues wag whatever i say <laughs> right it's time for the quiz uh and this week's is naturally all about special advisors so just shout out the answer if you know it which special advisor was sacked following a high profile cabinet row between theresa may and michael gove in 2014 fiona Correct. 
Fiona Hill. Hill was forced to resign as Theresa May's special advisor after she rowed with Michael Gove over extremism in schools, alleged extremism. Um, who was the first ever Downing Street chief of staff? Well, I've, I'm torn between saying um, uh, Powell, Jonathan Powell, under Blair, but I'm, I'm, I'm tempted by saying, was it was it someone under Wilson, actually? Um, did Wilson do Donoghue? It's Powell. It's oh, it's Powell. Powell. Okay, he's the in, first formal one. Okay. He's yeah. the first chief of staff, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, who was the only minister to quit the government over Dominic Cummings' alleged breach of lockdown? earlier this year. Oh, that's a good one. Douglas Ross. Correct. Well done, Tom. There you go. My first right first answer. point. <laughs> yes, it's, it's as good as a victory. Yeah. It's the only <laughs> but Paul has one, I'm afraid. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, heroic, heroic effort. Yeah, well done. Uh, unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guests for joining me and make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels and please be sure to leave a review. And get your daily dose of what's happening in Westminster by subscribing to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone. We'll just leave you with US talk show host Anna Navarro reflecting on the dying days of the Trump administration. But they were, they were, they were going to have this press conference at the Four Seasons, but I guess they screwed up and they scheduled it at the Four Seasons Total Landscaping. So off goes Giuliani. <laughs> to the back of this landscaping store that's right next to Fantasy Island Adult Bookstore and across the street from a crematorium. And the first witness that Giuliani calls up is a child sex offender who served time for exposing himself to children, okay, in the 90s. This is the... This is the kind of operation they are running. They went to a landscaping store to hold a press conference (laughs) instead of the Four Seasons. It's over. I mean, hit the road, Don. (laughs) (laughs)